Young me was uh, subscribed to Nintendo Power back in the day, thanks to my mom. And I don't, unfortunately, have the issue, the specific issue anymore. It was lost in the great move that I've referenced a few times. That would have been uh, 1996. But in one of the issues, there was a couple things. I was really interested in it because there was some stuff about this up-and-coming game called Super Mario Bros. 3. But in the middle of it, there was this thing for a game called Dragon Warrior. I was like, what the heck is that? So I pulled it up, and it was a choose-your-own-adventure now, this was something that I ate up, because I love Choose Your Own Adventures. I mean, I still do, but even as a kid, you know, I was totally into it. So I was like, oh, cool. I ended up taking it into school with me that day and getting in a little bit of trouble, because after I finished my assignment, I pulled out my magazine and started reading it right there in front of the class, which was distracting to the other students who hadn't finished their assignments yet. Whoops. Anyways. <clears throat> But I was just, I was, oh, I can do this and do this. Oh, I've got ten gold. And, oh, no, I got killed by the ghost. What do I do? I was really hoiped, to say the least. So when it hit the nearby rental store, I rented that right off first thing. I was like, oh, this is great. And it started scratching an itch. Now, I'm not sure if I played Dragon Warrior or Final Fantasy I first. I've said this many times. I have a really good memory, but I don't remember exactly which of those experiences was first. But I do remember that those two were my first exposures to what I would consider RPGs. Well, I technically played things that could be technically called RPGs before that. Those were the origins, really. So I was like, okay, cool. Get up and head out and fight some slimes and head out. And oh, there's a bridge and I go across it and there it's a skeleton. Thunk! Oh. And that's my first memory of Dragon Warrior. So named because of the fact that another company, which I didn't even write down the name of, actually owned the copyright over Dragon Quest at the time, a problem which no longer exists. And Enix has now consumed that copyright and now can actually release them as Dragon Quest in the West. Which is good, because I think it works a little bit better than Dragon Warrior, personally. I mean, wouldn't the Dragon Lord be the Dragon Warrior here? I don't know. Either way, let's talk about... I hope I pronounce this correctly. Uh... I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Idansha? Idansha Boshu Services. Probably pronouncing that incorrectly. Uh, they were a company that put out little tabloid magazines that uh, that's advertised for real estate places. Cool stuff. Cool stuff. That wasn't working out all that well for them. So they decided to become a software company. I mean, it can't be weirder than Nintendo's path, right? Anywho, they decided to restructure themselves as effectively publishers. Although the term publishing wasn't quite the same back then. But that is what they were. That was their slot. And that's what Enix kind of has been and will be for some years to come. And there was a group of people, including one Yoji Hori. You've probably, uh, you probably know who that is. Who were like, yeah, we can make games. And there were some adverts and there were some campaigns. There was like a little uh, contest thing you could do in order to get your game in. And quite a few games were gotten in. And after several of these games were released and Enix was doing okay... Um, Mr. Hori was like, you know, I really liked this game I played. Oh, what's it called? Wizardry. Now, quick historical context for those of you not aware. Wizardry was a smash success here in the West. As in, uh, it was one of those things that sold very well. Not just well, but very well. And it was unexpected. Nobody really anticipated that Wizardry would explode the way it did which led to the Wizardry series, and I forget if Ultima predates or follows Wizardry, but Ultima kind of hit at the same time, 
and PC RPGs were kind of doing their thing. This was uh, what mo- most people consider to be the Bronze Era of RPGs, before Dragon Quest came out. Because most of these RPGs were... Um, I don't want to say bad. <laughs> they, uh, they were esoteric, I think is the word I'm going to use there. I think, I think that works. They really weren't sure what to do with a lot of things, and they were still figuring out certain things about, you know, programming, and the hardware was very, very limited. I mean, some of you may not remember that Ultima 1 was actually an ASCII art game, for God's sakes. So, anywho. <sighs> Nevertheless, that kind of took off, and there was a bit of a barrage of the, that type of PC games. Uh, I say PC, it's more like Amiga and the like, but you know that type of RPG games in the West. But it never took off in the East. Japan didn't really hit that. Mr. Hori and his people, they were like, you know, we need to bring RPGs to Japan. <laughs> I love the historical context here. We need, we need to come up with this idea. All right, so how do we do it? Well... The obvious option would be to just go ahead and make, you know, an RPG. But then they were like, well, hang on. Something just happened that's really important. It's something called a Famicom. And even at the time, people could tell the Famicom was a bit of a sea change when it came to gaming as as a concept. And they really wanted to go ahead and focus on making a game for that. There were other options, of course, including the arcade, which was... Uh, pretty big in Japan at the time, and is arguably still big in Japan. But no, we, we want to make it that Famicom thing. That way, just about anybody can... Like, remember, the whole goal, the central pillar of this entire goal, is to make a game to spread RPGs to the Japanese audience. That means we need to lower the barrier to entry as far as we can, but the game still needs to be good. Like, we can't simplify the game to the point of stupid... We have to make it so it's still enjoyable and readily accessible. That's a tricky thing to do. So we're going to aim for the Famicom, and we're going to get uh, several big-name stars, people who were technically at the beginning of their careers but were already well-known people, such as Koichi Sujiyama and, of course, Akira Toriyama, involved in this project. That's, if you ever wondered why they're attached to this. And there was a few other people, which I don't have all their names written down, please forgive me, but they're like, okay... We gotta design this sucker. How are we gonna design this sucker? Hmm. Let's design it based on Mario Brothers. Let me rewind just a second. For those of you who don't remember, the old RPGs, they had bad interfaces. I don't mean the interface. I'm sorry. There's actually two layers of interface. There's the interface that's on the screen, and then there's the interface which is the controller, right? The method by which you interact with the game. So the uh, the controls of those games were uh, they were a thing, and they were staring at these games like, how the heck are we going to get this onto the NES controller? Like, I actually have my NES controller right here. I can I can demonstrate. We've got four buttons and a D pad. How are we going to make this work? This is why they decided to effectively base this game off of Super Mario Brothers instead. In so doing the game wouldn't require that much. It also kind of began the idea of uh, controller menuing, which is something that's so common nowadays that I bet you didn't even realize it was a thing back in the day. You know, in other words, rather than hitting a button to do something, you hit a button to bring up the menu, and then you navigate the menu with the D-pad, and then you hit the button in order to actually do the action. If you ever wondered why use stare and use chest and talk to person and all that were in the menu, this is why. This was their workaround to make this work. But I mentioned the Mario Brothers thing. 
they wanted it to be relatively free roaming. In fact, there are some people who argue this is effectively one of the first uh, non-linear video games. And it is surprisingly non-linear. You don't have to go from stage one to stage two to stage three. You, you can go wherever as long as you can, you know, survive it. There are guides. There are things that are there to kind of encourage you to go to a certain direction. In fact, the overall design is not exactly terrible. It kind of leans you this way and then this way and then this way. And I, I know that's a super summary, but anybody who's played this game, you probably know what I'm talking about. Just the, the layout of the mountains and the way the path, the green goes. You can walk on the, the hills and all that. You can walk in the forests, but the path of the greenery kind of just automatically encourages the player to follow the grassland. I'll admit back in the day, I didn't even realize you could t walk on the hills because it just didn't occur to me to. So I just walk on the grass, and that naturally led me to the first cave where I get the first plot coupon, and that led me to the first town, and so forth and so on. Actually, the second time, you get my point. So there's guidance in terms of the layout and the design and the enemies, and the bridges, I'll get to that in a second, but it is free roaming. You can just go wherever. The only place you cannot go at the beginning of the game that, that is flat out locked out from you is the final dungeon, which requires the rainbow bridge to get across. That's it. So, bridges, though. I keep talking about bridges. This is probably the most brilliant thing about this game design. Every area, the, 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 the overworld is chopped up into specific areas, and each area is effectively a level. Whenever you cross a bridge, you have entered a new level. And in the new level, there are harder enemies and more difficult stuff, but it's also a place where you can progress to. Thus, th this is part of what I mentioned when I mentioned how they were kind of using Super Mario Brothers as a way to design this game. Because if you restructure it in your mind, instead of looking at an overworld, but instead a level map, you can see there's level 1, where you start. Over here is level 2, down here is level 3, over here is level 4, down here is level 5, etc., etc., right? And you can see it. You can see how the levels progress. And in almost every case, the levels are are uh, delineated by a bridge. There's even an NPC in the game who flat out says, Hey, bridge, that means a harder enemies. Be careful. Which is another thing to bring up, by the way. This sounds hysterical in hindsight. I know this wasn't the first game to do this, but this was kind of the first game to have helpful NPCs. To explain what I mean by that... Usually NPCs were seen as mandatory shopkeeps or plot-relevant individuals, or they were there just to, you know, walk around and, and share random tidbits that have nothing to do with anything. The idea of all the NPCs saying something that's useful or helpful to the design of the game and to inform how you're supposed to play the game was kind of a new concept and something that would be taken by many, many, many RPGs after this point. Hell, even non-RPGs tend to take this idea and run with it in the future. So we've got an open world, kind of, which is clearly delineated for difficulty with NPCs who help you as you're going through. What else could we do to make this a little better? I've got one. This is my favorite little factoid about this game. For years, I have made fun of this game in a lighthearted way, not in a, not in a malevolent kind of way, of the fact that the final dungeon's right there. Like, you, you start the game and the final dungeon's right there. And I think I've even referenced this on this show before because it amuses me so much. But that was a deliberate design choice. Why? Because he wanted you to know your goal the moment you stepped out of the, uh, the, the the castle. The moment you stepped out of Tantacle, he wanted you to look... I have no idea how to pronounce that word, by the way. He wanted you to see the end goal right there. Thus, you know what you're working towards. This is also one of the reasons why, at the very beginning, the exposition from the king includes you're going to rescue the princess and you're going to defeat the dragon lord. 
Now, that's cool. There's a few other things they did, too. This is probably one of the better decisions they made in this game, and in my opinion is probably the decision that allowed for this game to have most of its standing appeal. It's not that punishing. Oh, it's hard. There's plenty of difficulty in this game, even for the simplicity that it is. But if you die, you lose half your gold and you go back to town. Now, losing half your gold sucks. I don't want to sound like it doesn't, but I want you to put yourself once again in historical context. This is the mid-80s, okay? I think it was 86 when this first came out. And I want you to imagine what happens when you die in so many video games that were out at that point. In the arcades, on the PCs, and of course on the NES or the Famicom. Penalty for failure is something I talk about a lot when it comes to game design, because you do need to have some kind of penalty for failure, but it's very easy to go too light or too harsh with that. And hitting that sweet spot is, it's, it's a whole thing, right? I think this actually hit a really good sweet spot. It's one of the better ones I've seen for this. It reminds me of the early Breath of Fires, actually. Cause you don't really lose progress. I mean, you lose gold, and that does lose progress. And gold is significant in this game. But, at the same time, you get to keep playing the game. This also leads me to another thing they did. They made it so that the early levels are, come by relatively quickly. Now, that tapers off, and this game gets very grindy. I'll talk about that in a second. But the early levels are supposed to just kind of fly by so that the player feels like they're progressing relatively quickly and thus feels like they're accomplishing something to try and hook the player early to make sure that they don't get discouraged. Because, again, lowering the barrier to entry. All of this combined with the fact that the Famicom absolutely ex was, was exploded. Its, its saturation in Japan was insane. And this was Final Fantasy VII for Japan. Now, I'm going to just cover this very briefly, but on the off chance you've never heard me talk about this, Final Fantasy VII was a huge sea change to gaming as a concept. Um, probably not as big as the sea change that Doom was, but in a similar vein. Final Fantasy VII expanded the RPG market across at least two continents to a level that had never been seen before. It made RPGs, as well as gaming, more mainstream and more popular. And thus, the audience grew substantially. This is one of the reasons why FF7 is so well-beloved. I mean, it's a good game. That helps. But its timing was what really sold it. The, the time at which it came out. And it's the same thing with Dragon Quest One. Dragon Quest One was the first big, oh my gosh just barely beating out FF1, when it came to Japanese RPGs. And this would then create a following that they would then expand upon in Dragon Quest II, and far more importantly, Dragon Quest III, which is actually the real success story. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, so I guess that's actually a lie. I guess this is more like FF4, if I want to get down to it. But the same general concept, right? This is the thing that expanded RPGs into the Japanese market. Now, if you're paying attention, all of them talk about is game design and, you know, level design and behind-the-scenes stuff. That's because there's not a lot else to discuss when it comes to Dragon Warrior, or that is to say, Dragon Quest. I mean, I could discuss a few things. Let's talk about the narrative for a second. The narrative was designed to be relatively simple, just like the gameplay was. Again, lower barrier of entry. But they wanted there to be some kind of path there, some kind of uh, coming-of-age sort of a story. So it's like, okay, there's an evil dragon. Um, actually, sorry, we don't know that. Spoilers. <laughs> that was actually a spoiler back in the day. No, there's an evil dragon lord, 
Uh, he found a dragon and discovered that he can control it. Oh my gosh. And he called himself the Dragon Lord and took the Sphere of Light, which was an artifact that had been brought down to the world from the heavens, remember that for later, uh, by Erdrick, the hero of old. And because monsters are a classification of entity, like uh, Oni or um, you know demons or whatever, all the monsters couldn't stand the light, so the monsters literally fled the land. But when the Dragon Lord comes along and takes this light, then all of the monsters start coming right back in. Hence the state of the world at the start of the game. This is also why after you beat the game and reclaim the light, there are no enemy encounters on the way back to town, because they have literally fled the land, just like they had prior. Anyways. Um, also, the Dragon Lord has also kidnapped the local princess to make into his bride for some reason. I guess it's because she's an awesome shield. I don't know. And that's uh, that's it. That's the story. I mean, there, I'm, I'm skipping over a few tidbits. One of the things I find most amusing about the narrative is that there are several lines of dialogue, even in the NES version, which talk about how Erdrick descended from on high. The way they phrase it, it makes it pretty clear that the intent was probably that he was sent from heaven, or from the goddess specifically. I forget her name. She's named in a few of the Dragon Quest games. But it's funny considering Dragon Quest III, which would take that little factoid and run with it in the future. But we'll cover that when we get to DQ3. Although I should mention right now, one of the things I find fascinating about the Dragon Quest series is how the narratives connect and don't. Dragon Quest I through three are direct sequels. Dragon Quest IV through six are indirect sequels. And then Dragon Quest Seven, Eight, and Nine don't really have anything to do with each other. And we've kind of reset the board with 11, and I won't talk about 11 here for obvious reasons. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. But the point being, the way that they did that, the direct, indirect, disconnect thing, fascinates me. It almost feels like they were trying out different narrative tropes and concepts when it came to each trilogy. If this trend continues, it'll be interesting to see what they do with 12 and 13. And I love the hell out of 11. It's my favorite Dragon Quest game, so we'll see what they do going forward. But anyways. <laughs> um, so I'm looking at my notes here. Um... I think I've actually covered most everything. I, I want to talk about the simple thing, right? I wanted to talk about that. That was it for narrative. I hope you enjoyed that. This game is very simple. That's not a bad thing. But it, it is it is a demonstrable thing. And the funny thing is it is objectively a simpler bit game than Final Fantasy 1. Now, there was a a reputation that arguably still exists that Dragon Quest is big in Japan, you know, the East, and Final Fantasy is big in the West, the States. Whether that's true or not is something that's a lot more malleable, but back in the day it was much more true, and it's because FF1 took off a lot more in the West than Dragon Warrior. Now, Dragon Warrior still did a lot, you know, Dragon War I'm saying specifically Dragon Warrior, the NES um, American version, did do well enough to get two and three here in the States, and we did get a couple of ports here and there. But for the most part, it just wasn't the smash, critical, oh my gosh, success that it was over in Japan. I don't know exactly why that is, but I have a feeling that at least part of that is because of timing. Dragon Warrior came out three years after Dragon Quest. By that point in time, and remember, gaming moves forward very quickly, especially in the 80s and 90s, where gaming was rapid. Think about a game from 82 versus a game from 92 and just compare the two side by side, you know? Anyways, so with gaming moving forward so much and so many RPG games which have been developing and Final Fantasy 1, which came out in the NES uh, around the same period of time, just uh, just under a year later, I want to say, I feel like the timing just didn't hit the same way. 
you know, Dragon Quest One was so perfectly positioned to be the smash success back in Japan, but it was positioned to just be another RPG by the time it came out here in the West. Especially since, again, the RPG crowd, which was at the time considered to be a fully Western audience, was already into their Amigas and their Commodores and their PCs, and, you know, that was that market. So they look at this like, really? Because it is a very basic game. To say it's bad is something I don't feel comfortable doing, because I don't think it is, at least not the version I played. The NES version certainly had some aggravations in controls and menuing, which I don't care for, but the core gameplay was actually pretty solid. Again, everything I talked about with the, the level design, right? And the, the nature of how you progress. Uh, there's something I actually didn't mention, too. This is a Dragon Quest hallmark, and it's one of the, my favorite things about the franchise. I'll admit, I didn't really notice this until Dragon Quest IV, but in Dragon Quest games, any increase in power is a substantial increase in power. Let me explain what that means really quick. In most games, you have multiple methods of increasing your power. The power progression curve is what I call that. Um, there's straight-up vertical leveling, and there's also horizontal leveling, and the way these two interact determines your curve. Sounds like... I, I know I'm getting a little bit into this. I'm trying not to go too far into this because it's not super relevant. But the point is, all the stuff you get, levels, which just gives you stats, equipment, items, alternate leveling methods like materia or, you know, merging items or, or summons or whatever that, all of that stuff all combines across these two axes to make your curve, okay? Now... Most games have a pretty smooth line. It's just like this. What that means is each individual thing that pushes you on one side or another of the axis only moves you forward a little bit up. You gain a little bit of stats. The difference isn't really noticeable. Five levels might be noticeable. Ten levels is noticeable, but one level? You can barely tell the difference, right? Dragon Quest took the opposite approach to there. Um, sometimes this is referred to a staircase power progression because what happens is each jump up is a noticeable climb up. So each new piece of equipment you get is a big boost. Each level you gain is a big boost, etc. The fact that you are supposed to beat this game at about level 22 says a lot, I think. That's 22 levels of power throughout the whole game. And the fact that there's, uh, I don't remember the number, it's like six weapons and three shields and four pieces of armor. Thus, by default, each piece of armor, each piece of equipment, each level had to be significant. But this became a hallmark going forwards. And I do like that. I like how each significant boost or each boost is significant. It's the Paper Mario leveling system, which is to this day probably one of the best designed power progression curves I've ever seen in, in gaming. Is Paper Mario One specifically? It's brilliant. Anyways, so that is all. While I'm here, let me segue into another topic I find fascinating. I love the fact that so many. You ever study franchises? You probably haven't. Um, it's funny how many things become a whole thing in the future, but they didn't intend it, right? Like, why Star Wars and Star Trek are both absolutely rife with this. But there's things that they did because, you know, someone ran out of time or they didn't have an idea or someone just came up with an idea randomly or whatever, right? And they did it because of some kind of limitation or whatever. And then people in the future look at that when they're designing the, the mythos and the franchise going forward. They're like, well, now we got to do that. In Dragon Quest, I've already given you one example, the, the style of leveling, which only happened because they were so limited on what they could put on a Famicom disc, and for what was effectively, I believe, their second Famicom game ever, something like that. I'm not sure of the specifics on that, please forgive me. 
but they were really limited, so Future Games took that idea and made it a design rather than a limitation. The other one, of course, is the main character. Anybody who's ever played a Dragon Quest game knows that the main character is always kind of good at everything. They're a good melee, who's a good tank, who's got lots of magic, most of which are support and healing spells. Sound familiar? Because that's the main character in this game. Why did Future Games do that? Well, because they had to do that in this game. Because they had a party of one. You only have you, and that's it. Now, this is absolutely something that was a limitation. There's actually interviews where they talk about how they wanted to have multiple party members, and they just couldn't figure out how to get it to work. There were memory limitations, and again, this is an early game. So they were like, ugh. So they literally had to make one party member do the job of an entire party, hence the style for future games. This is also true when it comes to enemies. You only fight one enemy at a time, ever. You'll only ever encounter the one thing. And this is part of that simple thing I talk about. You know, you have, uh, you can fight, you can use your spells, of which there's, I think, six in combat, and one of which is totally worthless. That's Sizzle, by the way, or Hurt More, if you prefer. And then you've got uh, some items you can use, of which I believe there's a grand total of two. And that's it. <laughs> Those are your options. That's your toolkit when it comes to combat. Like I said, simple. And again, this is why this game is objectively simpler than Final Fantasy 1. A party of one against four bosses in the entire game, across five dungeons in the entire game, across an overworld map you can cross in about three minutes, as long as you don't run into any encounters. But none of that is a complaint. If anything, it helps to establish, and this is why I had that whole speech about establishing stuff for a future franchise, I feel like this is why Dragon Quest has always had that... I don't want to use simple. There's a certain charm to it. There's a certain style to Dragon Quest games that has endured all the way to 11. And, I, and simple feels like the wrong word, but you, it, it, at the same time, I don't know what else to call it. Dragon Quest games know exactly what they are, and they embrace it wholly and without shame. They don't try to be over the top. They don't try to be super complex. They don't try to have multiple weird twists and turns going throughout the narrative. There's not aliens from another planet which are secretly going through the fifth dimension back in time in order to turn you into your brother's mother's sister. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean. And JRPGs are kind of known for a lot of that um, weirdness, for lack of a better way to call it. Even the FF series, which I'm rather fond of, even the very first FF had time travel and a space station, and robots, just to show the contrast between these two styles. So I like the fact that they embrace this simplicity, and of course, it's not badly designed, with one exception. <sighs> this game probably had the most neutral score of any game I've ever reviewed. Very, very few positives, very, very few negatives. The net score was plus two to story and zero to gameplay. But... The reason why is because the two gameplay negatives are both for grind walls. Let me explain what the game does right, and then you will understand why it does it incredibly wrong. You start out in town, okay? You go out into the fields, and these enemies are... Oh my gosh. And so, as now this is important. As long as you're paying attention, as long as you're using your brain and recognizing your limitations, you know when to go back to town. If you don't, either because you're new or don't know what you're doing or whatever, then you die and get warped back to town. Now, that limits your progression because your gold is halved each time. But either way, you go out, you come back, you go a little further, you come back, and you go a little further, 
and you come back. Each time the experience gain and that staircase leveling system and each new piece of equipment you can buy means you can push farther. It's like an expedition. You sally out and you come back for, for camp and then you sally out further and you come back to camp and so forth and so on. Uh, I feel like there's a, a genre of game that approaches exactly that. It's kind of survivally almost, you know, because the more you do, the more you can do, the more you do. It makes a very nice loop. And for the majority of the game, that loop holds true. There's no point at which it's like, oh, God, I, I just got to stop and run in a circle for a minute, because all you have to do is just make your way towards the next, ob next objective. A perfect example of this is when I was going to one of the caves, one of the five dungeons in the game, and I got in and I was like, oh, I can just barely handle here, but I can kind of handle it here. And the enemies outside are easier. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to run around at the very beginning of this cave for like three battles. Just get some gold, right? Just get some gold and experience. Then I'm going to leave. And then I go back to town and buy a new shield with the gold I just got. Go back and now I can go through the whole first level of the dungeon because of the new armor. And then I kind of had to retreat again. And the third time I beat the whole dungeon. You see why I, I kind of compare this to expeditions. And this also adds to the overall adventuring flavor of the game. This is all great, and I love this, and I gave a positive for it. Then we hit the grind wall. The first grind wall is when you have to start fighting bosses, of which there are three. Uh, well, I mean, no, there's four bosses total, but that's counting the final boss. There are three bosses, and you can access all of them pretty much right off the bat. There's the green dragon, which is carrying the princess. There's the mystic knight, whatever, the ardent knight, I forget the exact name. He's, he's defending the armor, and then there's the golem down here who is defending the town. Of those, the golem is easiest because there's a way around him, the flute. But otherwise, I hit that point. And I just, I ran into a stat wall because the downside of the staircase leveling method is if you are not the level you should be, the level you should be is way up here because of the increase in power being substantial, which means the enemy's up here. So I ran around for about an hour and a half and got myself the gold and money I needed to be able to progress. Now, I thought that was cool, and I was done. But having to effectively stop playing the game in what otherwise been a very smooth and awesome loop of experience was awful. It's worth noting, I did that on the Switch version, which has a substantially improved experience curve. So just kind of double that for the original NES. Then you get to the second grind wall. The final boss... Dragon Quest games almost always have final bosses be really hard. Like, they're almost always the hardest bosses in their game, or second hardest if there's a super optional, right? And that's a tradition that's gone throughout. It's it's kind of the opposite of what the Final Fantasy series did uh, from 6 onwards. Because they're like, okay, the final boss is the hardest boss in the game, barring a super optional. So it's like, okay. <laughs> you get to the Dragon Lord, and he, he pastes you. He is... Um, unmitigatingly capable of just absolutely destroying you. If you are not level 17 at a bare minimum, you're dead. Unless you're a speedrunner or a tasser, in which case level 7 is the minimum. Which is insane, by the way. You should watch that run. If you've ever seen a level 7 run, it's, it's awesome. But level 17 is the floor. At level 17, you might be able to do it, do it if you're lucky with your rolls and know exactly what you're doing. And have all the gear. I got to him at about level 20 and ran into a wall. I ended up grinding. Actually, I think it was 18. Sorry, I got to him at 18. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then I grinded up to, I believe we got to 21 or 22. And I decided, okay, let's let's go ahead and try this. And we did have a good series of rolls. I got lucky twice, uh, almost in a row. It was like lucky, turn, and then lucky again to not die. And we managed to beat him. He is no joke, but 
it's another grind wall. Now, it wasn't as long of a grind period. I think it was something like 40 minutes. But still, that's about 2 hours and 15 minutes on the improved version of not playing the game in order to be able to progress. It's the only flaw in an otherwise surprisingly good game. If you've never played this game, I do actually recommend it. Um, I would probably recommend the new port, even though the graphics are not for everyone, including me. But nevertheless, you can see why this game captured so many people's attention and admiration and was just kind of awesome. I don't know how else to put it. This really was something special, and I think people back then, this is pure speculation, but I think people back then saw this and were like, damn, and just kind of stuck with it, you know? Either way, next up we'll be covering two, the worst of the original trilogy. Yay. See you then.